This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass. You can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky. A few cotton wool clouds. Higher and higher in the great dome of the sky. Filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I say God. How do you like that? Why, it's preposterous. Thank you very much. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy. In 1994, while a senior in college, my guest, Trisha Barker, was in a terrible car accident, and she died in the operating room. She's now an English professor. She's interviewed numerous people who've had near-death experiences, and she's just come out with a new book entitled Angels in the OR, What Dying Taught Me About Healing, Survival, and transformation. Hi, Tricia. Welcome. Hi. I'm so happy to be on your show. Thanks for having me. You've been through so much in your life, and it seemed unfair to me for someone to go through so much trauma. And in addition to your near-death experience, your story is also about learning to heal from trauma and anxiety, from growing up poor 
and having an abusive mother going through these traumatic experiences of rape, domestic violence, and being stalked by narcissistic men in our society. So it's not really your typical near-death experience story. No, it isn't. And, you know, I think it's so important that atypical stories are told because I teach disadvantaged students at community colleges who grow up uh, with extreme poverty and sometimes extreme abuse as well. And many times they don't find the healing and the strength to tell their stories. You know, they're barely surviving. So I I felt like it was a feat, you know, just to get to a point of healing to be able to help others and then an even greater feat to be able to write it and tell the story. And when other people walk a mile in someone else's shoes, they they gain more empathy because it's, it's honestly different to have a near-death experience in your 50s when you're kind of middle class or well off and and uh, you know in a different place in life than it is to have one as a teenager or a young adult. And what I found is that in telling my story, there are many 15 year old girls who had a near death experience who were like, "Yeah, three weeks later I was raped." And how could I possibly, you know, connect that beautiful near death experience to being back here in on on this earth plane and and you know you can get into all kind of philosophical debates about well is this our soul contract you know did we come here to experience these things to heal these things and grow stronger or did we come here just to make this world better in some ways and you know just look at the sociological landscape of things and you know it rape is common <laughs> you know child abuse is common yes however just the fact that you just described encountering young women who shortly after having a near-death experience were raped and you had a, a similar experience, do you think that having the near-death experience and, and going through this incredibly powerful experience of love and connection perhaps set you up to being more vulnerable to to opening yourself up to more risk and more danger? Yes, and that's, that's a point that I definitely am trying to hammer into the spiritual community in various ways, that people who have an awakening or a near-death experience can be very childlike, and it's not uncommon that they're embezzled or taken advantage of in some way because they see the beauty and the possibility of God in every soul that they encounter, and they're just kind of blown wide open. I, I joke that before my near-death experience, I was pretty sarcastic and cold and self-protective, and and I didn't let people in quite in the same way. But then after the experience, I was, you know, a hugger and, you know, oh, I love you, and, you know, let's, let's see the best in everyone and believe in the best in everyone. And... In some ways, I think self-protection and discernment can be taught to people who are just blown wide open with love that you still have to journey through a landscape that can be dangerous. And, you know, near-death experience or not, I always tell my college students, hey, take a self-defense course, every one of you, you know, female, male, whatever, you know, just, just take one. So 
it's as if the near-death experience accelerates the need to find that balance between opening ourselves up and seeing the best in others and yet also recognizing the need for some kind of healthy discernment and, and boundaries in the world. Definitely, definitely. You know, we can't help everyone. Um, you know, we only have so much strength. And and I found that, you know, and I, I've also talked about this on different videos, but I believe I was blessed to be in the classroom and to be a professor and a teacher at different times because that gives you a certain amount of authority. You know, I could call the police if someone was out of line. I could give someone detention, I could have someone removed from my classroom, and that gave me authority. I didn't have to just continue to be abused, you know, by a student. <laughs> like, that That doesn't, that isn't allowed, you know, after a certain amount of time. And, and so the classroom is kind of a good model for you can give unconditional love to someone who just came out of jail, perhaps, and you're not even thinking about what they did in their past, and they turn their life around because... For the first time in their life, they're getting affirmation and believing in themselves. And, and you know, that's a, a safe environment to give love. So there are many safe ways to give love. Uh, but, but you don't just, like, give power to someone who's imbalanced and let them run all over people. <laughs> and there's the dynamic of the, the type of love and somehow making it clear. Or I imagine with you this isn't an issue because you're well aware that this is not some kind of romantic love or some idealized form of love. It's, it's on the level of, of unconditional love or, or the kind of love that you, you have for, for the essence of a person. Yeah, that's such a good question. I'm, I'm glad you asked that because it, I'll answer it in two parts. The first part is I was always clear as an instructor that I was there for my students' souls. I was there to help them be the best people that they possibly could be to attain the life that they wanted. And I just, you know, I never looked at their outward appearance as important. And I know that that some people cross boundaries, you know, when working with youth or very attractive people, you know, they just simply keep seeing them as, you know, how they look instead of looking at them at the soul level. And and so I think even teaching boundaries when working with the public is important, you know, that you don't comment on people's appearances, that you comment on, if you're a teacher and a professor, you comment on their mind and their accomplishments and what they're doing and learning. And uh, it, you'd be surprised in the Deep South how often <laughs> people do comment on people's appearances, even in, in professional environments. And uh, and that uh, that gets you branded as like a radical feminist just for saying, hey, can we not introduce women by the way they look? <laughs> Believe it or not. But that, that happens in, in institutions. And it's not radical feminism. It's just... It's just basically professionalism, you know? <laughs> Do you know what I mean on that level? Yeah, well, I don't think that's that unusual in in our culture. I mean, we're so obsessed with with appearance in our culture. So I think most people are conditioned to fall into that trap over and over again in, in many different ways. Yeah, so that's 
one part of answer to your question. The other part is love and how love is so misunderstood when your death experiencers come back and they say, love is all that matters. Then a lot of people respond, well, hey, nobody loves me. <laughs> like, uh, no, what are you doing to love the world? Are you going to volunteer at an animal shelter? Are you helping out some homeless people? Are you, you know, taking meals to elderly people? Are you just being nice to the cashier? Are you uh, loving everyone who you encounter? And as you let that love flow out of you, a lot of times love is going to be returned to you, but it's being in the flow of love, not how much love are you getting. And again, that's like our narcissistic culture. It's, you know, you throw a picture up on Instagram or you throw some, how much love and how many likes am I getting? How much love do I get from the world? And we do need it. You know, like we're all in need of love, but we find it more often when we're allowing ourselves to feel incredibly worthy and like these children of God who are just loved infinitely. And then we have this brimming excess of love that we can give to others. And, and then it can be even misunderstood in spiritual communities. I've heard different healers say that when they're bringing in a powerful energy of God and love, people so very rarely feel that, that they can mistake it for sexual attraction and they can mistake it for, oh my goodness, this person loves me, you know, because they don't experience much love in their life. And there are a lot of people who really did not experience much love in their life and perhaps experienced the other opposite end of the spectrum a lot more, who are desperately in need of the experience of love, and it may be very hard to find. So the idea of the practice of giving love in order to get love will probably be totally counterintuitive to them. Oh, that's a great point. You know, it's, there's so many things that to the near-death experiencer is just, oh, yeah, it's just common. And we think, oh, yeah, just give love. Because we were, in the, or many of us who had an experience where we got to that deep presence of God, felt this overflowing of love, like we were filled to the brim. So it's really easy, even if, even if my physical life and physical journey seems kind of difficult, I still have this otherworldly memory of what it was like to be just infused and expanded with this enormous amount of love and power and beauty and hope and safety that walking through this world is like, well, this is the worldly experience, but that's the, the real love that exists out there. But you're right. There are people who... That's a hard concept because they don't even have a model of how to begin to bring in that love. And I experienced that myself. I remember coming across or hearing this adage, to get what you need, give of what you have. And that line fascinated me for years. And it wasn't until I had a very traumatic separation that I realized that when I felt like I needed love, that I could give love. I could give what I felt like I needed, and, that, and it clicked for me because I had that direct experience of when I give love or when I give anything that, that's deeply meaningful to me, I actually experience it directly within myself. Oh, that is beautiful and, and, and so true. And then there are moments when... You know, we're in such deep grief 
you know, whatever it might be that we can't find a way to do that, but it's okay to reach out to other people in those moments. And it's okay to reach out too. I, I remind people that it's okay to reach out to the angels and to God and say, hey, I'm in so much deep grief right now or depression or pain. I just can't get through this moment. Can you help me get through it? And I found that sometimes I was able to get through those moments because my work was outward with the public. And so the minute my focus was with them, then my pain went away. But later I realized that, you know, the angels can work on an emotional problem and can send energy into that part of the heart or that part of the being that is wounded and begin to work on it. Or, you know, I joke too that, you know, if it's a small moment and say, you know, you just have a little argument with a friend or, or, you know, significant other or whatever, I felt God come in and just move all that energy aside so that it doesn't even exist, so that you're just left with no hurt feelings or no, you know, like triggered emotions like people talk about, and you can look at it uh, from a different perspective. So I think there's so much possible in the way that we interact with God and the angels, and we just don't ask sometimes, like, hey, would you take this away? I'm tired of dealing with it. <laughs> well, I have to say that there are a lot of people in this world who don't believe in God or haven't had an experience to give them a sense that there is any such powerful, loving presence that's really available to them or the experience of angels or anything like that. Yes, you're, you're right. And most of my friends were agnostic before my near-death experience. And I'm well aware that, you know, there's a lot of people who don't believe. And I, I guess I come back to like 12-step programs and, and AA and other programs where they ask you to believe in a God of your understanding. And for a long time, I didn't call these beings angels. I just called them beings. And then I called them light beings. And I called God the light. Uh, and then I came to these more familiar terms because it it draws in more people to the conversation. But I really I don't want my book, Angels in the OR, to exclude atheists and agnostics. Like It's very funny. I've been attacked on occasion by atheists and agnostics who are like, what a ridiculous title, Angels in the OR. And I'm like, you know what? I would rather be attacked by you all day long than an evangelical. You know, like, please read my book. And if it just cracks open your mind just a little bit to the possibility of, hey, what really happens when we die? And this person's really real. You know, she talks about her story in a way that that makes sense to me. Then, you know, I wanted my memoir to be like, you know, The Glass Castle or, you know, one of those books out there that it's just about a life story that happens to contain a near-death experience. And if you're not a believer in these things, then you just read it and as my perspective and as my journey. And many agnostics and atheists just say, well, I know it's real for you, and I know it changed your life. But, but when they follow the journey of what it was like to be me and to be someone who had a near-death experience, I think it opens up their mind. Like, I, I've worked on one friend for so long, and we've gone back and forth, and she's an agnostic, and I broke through her reserve against this after she read my book she said i did spend an hour or two just thinking about what is death going to be like and i was like yes <laughs> you know she she's at least questioning it 
Mm-hmm. So you've had this very direct experience, and I would love for you to talk about what you mean by God and what your actual direct experience was, because the term God is is a very loaded and highly misunderstood term, and I would love for you to ground it in your experience and make it as clear as possible to take it out of that realm of of mythology. Yeah, I will. And before I do that, I do want to say that there's so many researchers like Dr. Jeffrey Long who, when they look at thousands of near-death experiences, they say that we all fall apart when it comes to describing our experience of God, that we run out of words, that it's in, you know, that the experience just leaves us in tears, and you see people still emotional many years later when they start talking about the experience of God, and and Dr. Jeffrey Long and Raymond Moody and, and many others are some of the people who I've interviewed for this Near-Death Experience Summit, and it's so interesting to bring all these researchers and experiencers together because there's a lot of common themes, and, and that is a common theme, is that people fall apart when they try to describe God, because as we were saying earlier in this conversation, and I I was one of those that hadn't experienced great love before my near-death experience, and when I was in the presence of God, that was the first time I'd ever experienced anything like that, and trust me, I did not want to leave it. (laughs) I did not want to come back here. (laughs) I wanted to stay in that presence and in that experience that... Uh, there was just nothing more beautiful than, than that experience of God. But yeah, the, the to take it out of the mythological terms and, you know, the people read about God and they only have God written on paper and then human beings' interpretations based on the Bible or another religion and the experience of God is very different. So, you know, my near-death experience, I'm not going to get into the whole story because it's really great that we're talking about other things. And, you know, I've been interviewed so many times about the near-death experience. You can see it on YouTube and other places. But the last part of my experience was I was in this heavenly realm, and I decided to go toward that presence of God. And I knew it as God, but it was a light. So it was just this light that beckoned to me. And as I flew closer, as my spirit form flew closer and closer to that presence of God, I felt every bit of pain just being washed away. So anything that was done to me that was painful was just immediately forgotten, and I was infused with this deep love that anything that I had done to give love to this world. So anytime I was nice in nature or nice to people, uh, that was just, you know, God was, this energy was saying, that's wonderful, that's wonderful. And I felt a part of that energy, and God was a part of me. I was a part of God. I was safe. I was free. I was so completely loved. It was like an atomic bomb of love was just shot into my spirit form, and I was exploding with love, and it was so joyous and so amazing and so wonderful. Many people call it, who are near-death experiencers, say that they were going home, 
They knew that they came from this place of love and they were going back to this place of love. There was no judgment. There was just infinite compassion and infinite peace. And in that presence, you know, there was, there was nothing in me that wanted to return back home. And what's really interesting, or back, you know, to Earth and to my physical form, what's interesting is that many near-death experiencers like Mary Neal, who had a great life, you know, she was a doctor and had beautiful children and a wonderful husband. In the presence of God, she didn't want to return either. <laughs> like, there's uh, many people who, even if they've had a great earthly life and reasons to return don't want to when they get that close to God because it is the most powerful loving force imaginable. So when you say God is love, that does translate to many people who are religious. They're able to grasp that and go, yes, but it's the experience of that love that's different, and that's what I'm hoping to impart to maybe people who are turned off by religion but can imagine... um, a force being so much more compassionate than they ever realized. Mm-hmm. And at one point in the interview I did with Peter Panagor, who you know, um, about his near-death experience and his experience of God and and love, he, he likes using the term love for God. And at one point, it it became really clear to me that in our lives, in this world, we're, we're searching for something. We're, we're searching for something that we sense deep inside of us is most important. And when Peter talked about the incredibly powerful experience of being completely and unconditionally loved for everything he was and everything he had been through and that nothing was left out, that he was completely seen and completely accepted and completely loved. It hit me that that's, that's what we're all looking for in this world. Like when we get into a re- relationship with someone and we fall in love with someone, hopefully we get at least a taste of that with our parents or a strong taste of that with our parents, that experience of being completely and unconditionally loved. But a lot of people's parents are, are too messed up to be able to consistently give that to their children. And some are so messed up that they give a lot of the opposite. Like, you got that from your mother to, to at least some extent. I got that from my mother to some extent. So that that realization, that experience of, of God and love is really the thing that we're most deeply searching for. And my sense of why we seek that is that's where we came from. And we know that that's available to us in some way. But after getting lost in this world, we can fall into despair and feel lost and, and just seek kind of almost desperately or, or at least in a very confused and lost way. Beautifully said, and I have so many thoughts going in, in many different directions, but you're exactly right that to some degree 
many kids do experience some unconditional love from their family and then others don't, and it leaves them wounded and, and searching for love. And we, we all know at our core, I mean, even in the best of homes, I think people have described, even as a very young child, like, I don't belong here. You know, this is not my real home. My real home is where I'm loved completely and deeply, and that's that that missing wound, I think, in all of us is we miss God and we miss, you know, that being completely loved and being completely safe and being, um, you know, in that energy of what we are, which is pure love. Then, you know, when you look at it from another perspective, I want to circle back around to two near-death experiencers sometimes coming back and being somewhat innocent. Maybe, maybe part of what I wanted to communicate too is, hey, don't don't judge the experiencer for coming back innocent and a little bit like a kid. Like we don't judge kids for being abused. You know that we don't say that they're the fault, or the cause of it. They're just innocent. And so when you have this profound experience and you come back just shot full of love to a world that's sometimes dangerous, you know don't. Don't be too hard on the experiencers who are perhaps sometimes not treated fairly. You know, that they're just more childlike in this way of, hey, I want to love everyone. And, you know, that's, that's not, you know, their fault <laughs> for being that way. Right. And if they somehow get themselves into trouble because they haven't yet reintegrated into the the challenges and and conditioning of the world and recognizing um, some of the limitations that many of the people in this world are experiencing and suffering from, and how they're looking, f- and how they're they are looking for that unconditional love, and are doing the best they can to find it, and sometimes it manifests in very twisted ways. Yeah, and on the other side, you know. When we're here, we look at, you know, the need for um, punishment or jail systems or that kind of thing. On the other side, though, the way I saw it and the way a lot of near-death experiencers see it is that you're either coming from this place of light and love and connection with all that's good and all that you are, or you're surrounded by fear, which appeared as darkness. And so most of what what is seen as as wrong um, here comes from from what it seemed to be on a spiritual plane, fear. And the greater the fear, the more constricted the soul, you know, like the less it is connected to other people because it's only seeing its fear manifestation. Yes. And even in the world of neuroscience, they've, they've come to realize that um, fear shuts down our ability to to see the world around us. It actually constricts our vision. It constricts our heart. It, it constricts our entire being so that we are literally incapable of responding in a healthy way to the world around us. The opposite of when we experience love, when we open up and we become aware of many more options, many more possibilities of the way we can relate to people in the world around us. Fascinating. I love it when science and spirituality <laughs> confirm one another. It's just, uh, it's beautiful. Yeah, me, me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
it's wonderful. And and true. I mean, you can play this out in so many different scenarios, but, you know, different people who believe that, you know, the world is about to experience an apocalypse and they're, they're living in this place of storing up guns and, you know, searching for information to build up that belief system. You know, I often want to say to people like that, like, hey, just walk outside and look at the sky. Isn't it beautiful? And go talk to the person at the counter. Isn't he or she nice? And, you know, walk through your day and look at all the love around you and look at the vast majority of love around you. And, yeah, though we see a lot of camera attention and media attention on acts of violence in this country, and that is important to look at it, like, in the majority of your life, you're encountering very loving people. And we have to remember that there is a good majority of people. There is just a, that we all at our core just want a happy life and we want to be safe. And so if you start focusing on that, then you start seeing more love. And I I just see how people create these worlds in their head that are so dark and so fearful. And I'm like, it doesn't really match the reality surrounding you. Right. And another approach could be to ask them, well, what is it that you most deeply want? Why are you doing these things that you think are going to protect you or make your life better? Underneath that, what is it that, that you're trying to achieve, you know, at the deepest level, like peeling away the layers of an onion and asking a deeper question from each level and, and going deeper and, and deeper until you, you get to the core of, of what's most deeply important to you and, and what's underlying, you know, the underlying reason for everything you may be doing or trying to achieve. That's beautiful and a good psychological tool because, uh, again, it, it is probably fear or unworthiness or, you know, lots of different elements of someone feels like the world is chaotic and they don't know how to make sense of it with their own brain and and they're afraid of of the world in in some deep way or they feel wounded and this makes them feel powerful in some way and and that it's more important to look at the wound and if you heal that wound then maybe some of that fear begins to go away and if you create more community with others then you begin to trust others more. I, I, I think in education, one of the most important things that I do is create community, you know, that other people in this technological age are not talking to the person next to them. You know, they, they might sit in a class and they will both be on their cell phones and they never say a word to one another unless I make them. You know, like, and, and so as a college professor, I'm like, get in groups, know each other's name, tell me something about this person know who they are and what they're going through, know the people around you, because in times of need, isn't it always community that that can bring us through in a greater way? They even say that, you know, programs like AA and and different 12-step programs, that it's the community that's one of the most important things, that sharing, that authenticity, that being real with someone is what takes someone to that next level, that it's isolation that can be one of the most painful things and fearful things. Right. And love is all about connection. And the more connection we we can experience and the greater diversity of connections that we can experience, the better. Yes. 
Yes, exactly. That a lot of times when when people fear a group of people, you know, when they get to know someone in their class, you know, say if there's a lot of fear of people from the Middle East, if you get to know the kid who moved here from Dubai and how lonely he is because no one talks to him and he feels ostracized and then suddenly in your class talking about this and then you go out to eat and then you have a good time and, you know, then... And you're just friends. <laughs> then he's just the guy in your class, and and he has a, a different home, a different country, and that's that. And and that oneness is a key element of many near-death experiencers too. So uh, non-judgment, um, as you mentioned, Peter Panagor in an earlier um, time in this video uh, or in this talk, when I interviewed him, he talked about this oneness with everyone on Earth during his near-death experience. I had this moment of oneness with everyone in my city, and then when I interviewed him, I thought, well, that's a little unfair. He got to feel one with everyone on the world, and I just got my one city. <laughs> and uh, so I went into meditation after, after talking with him, and I had this beautiful experience where my soul just kind of connected for a moment with everyone on this earth. And it was such a, that oneness experience is healing just in the way that that experience of God is healing. Because when you realize that your energy is connected to everyone and that we're all connected, then that idea of harm kind of just seems irrelevant. You know, it's like, hey, let's just create a safe world. Let's create a safe place. And I know that we're probably a long way away from doing that, but that oneness element is a vital and important part of near-death experiences. I think it's an important teaching. Mm-hmm. Right. You get to to dive down deeply below the surface and get a an experience of something at a at a much more essential level or at the essential level. I know from my own personal experience, I've had numerous times in my life when I was in a painful situation with someone who was really angry at me or something, and I felt vulnerable and felt vulnerable as if I was a child, that kind of vulnerable, and being drawn very deeply down inside myself, like having a sense of being drawn into my heart and and in that place feeling that it was completely safe, that it was a, a very soft, warm mm. place where nothing in this outer world could harm me in any way, whether emotionally, psychologically, or physically, and just having a very deep, visceral experience of that on the level of of the certainty you know the 100% direct experience that that you talk about in your near death experience and that mystics talk about in their in their experiences as well so i've had that experience but but again when we when we return to this world it's so easy to get caught up in the fear of this world and and feeling the vulnerability of of being in a physical body and forgetting that connection. I mean, I think what it was was that I felt so completely connected to what is to a degree that I realized or that I just knew 
completely that nothing could harm me because I was part of everything, that I wasn't separate from anything, and therefore, it's like nothing that could happen. It's like when you realize that you're, when you're lying on the ground, you, you just know that you can't fall. <laughs> yes. That kind of level of, of experience, of feeling, of, of sensing. It's interesting, yeah. the use of, you know, use it, finding metaphors to describe experience. <laughs> yeah, I love what you said. That's just perfect and it, it kind of hit me that when if people are struggling to feel what you experienced or what what I experienced nature is a gateway to opening up that connection because people the minute immediately their energy changes when they're somewhere beautiful if you go to meditate or just even sit in nature you'll notice that your energy changes and I believe, this is just my belief, that sometimes if you lean up against the tree, the tree is trying to heal the pain in your body or to give you some strength or to, you know, be one with you in some way, that there's something about nature that's saying, hey, I'm here for you. I'm here to support you in your journey. And, you know, there's a lot of energy that comes from nature that we may not, that we may be aware of on a subconscious level and not a conscious level, but one of the clear directive that I heard during my near-death experience was remind them to go to nature. And that's maybe for healing, that's for peace, that's for resetting your vibe. <laughs> like there's just a, there's probably endless reason for reminding people to return to nature. But when we're disconnected from it, there's more anxiety and fear. And when we are in nature, then we're calmer. Yeah, and that reminded me how, at least in the summer, I just love to walk around barefoot. I just love the feeling of grass or dirt, you know, under my toes and and just feeling that direct connection to the earth. I just feel this connection and I just feel very, very nourished by it. Yeah, and, and more and more people were talking about earthing and grounding, and uh, I love that too. You know, like I grew up in the country, and that was a, a beautiful part of being in a rural area is that connection to nature. Now I tend to go there, and if I have anxiety or fear, I feel it leaving my body through my feet as I'm walking, or I feel it, I literally feel the earth going. I will take your fear and I will recycle it into something beautiful. And it's not that you're, you know, you're giving away your negative energy in a way to nature. It's that nature can transform it and just goes, okay, I'll take it, <laughs> you know, and we'll turn it into something good. And water does that too for me. I find that, like, being at the beach and swimming or, or even, even just taking a shower yeah, yeah. I've I've become more conscious of that too, that, you know, a shower or a bath at the end of the day or the beginning of the day, you can just wash away all you can think, oh, okay, I'm washing away the energy of anything that holds me back and it resets you in a way. Mhm. Mm and even without thinking about it, like I'll I'll just realize after a shower that wow, I just feel so different. There's been a a complete shift in my whole sense of being. Isn't that interesting? Something as simple as that can have um, has such a profound effect on our mood and the way 
we behave. But yeah, I, I take this and I, I tell this to students who are suicidal or who have been suicidal or suffer from depression because that's a part of my story. Before my near-death experience, I did uh, make an attempt on my life because I was in such great pain. And I look back and what I know now is if I would have walked outside and looked at the stars or sat under a tree or just done a few different actions and know that I can do those actions and walk through what I have to walk through in life, that I wouldn't have made that choice. And sometimes it is as simple as a choice of go sit outside under a tree and look at the stars and your mood will change. And I've also realized that suicide and a lot of suffering occurs as a result of timing. Like if you have just really bad timing where you're attacked by a deep sense of despair and there's nothing around you available to change your focus, that it can be like a perfect storm of things occurring that someone may not be able to find an escape. Yeah, and you know, on that subject and so many different subjects, what I love about most people in the near-death experience and most people who've had near-death experiences are they come back with this enormous capacity for compassion because that's what they felt in the presence of God. And what I felt God looking at my suicide attempt was like, oh, you poor thing, you were in so much pain and you didn't know better in that moment. You didn't know how to walk outside. You didn't know how to take care of yourself. I hope you learn how to take care of yourself. It wasn't like, oh, you're bad and you're going to burn in hell for, you know, that choice. And I have, I know for a fact, and this this irritates me and, and, and really hurts me that some churches tell parents who, when their kids overdose or commit suicide, that they're burning in hell, and I just know that to be not true. That's not of God. That is, you know, a human being's interpretation of what God would be. That's not the compassion. That's not the love. That's not what I experienced on the other side. And so I think near-death experiencers give, and mediums and, and others who are in contact with um, that other side, give great peace to people who have, have lost people to suicide. Right, and, and the, the experience that death is is not something to be afraid of at all. In fact, death is something to totally welcome. And, you know, people like you who've had near-death experiences actually long to return. Yeah, I don't, I don't get excited about, you know, physical pain because I live with some of it you know, after a uh, spinal injury and, and a back accident. But, yeah, it, it's funny. I I have been in situations where I could have instantly died, and I was at peace with that. So I was in an airplane that was going down, you know, a big commercial airline that lost power. And, I mean, we were falling from the sky, and we were in crash position. And the guy next to me was crying and screaming and saying, I have kids, I don't want to die. And I grabbed his hand, and I said, look, when we hit the ground, we're just going to go up into the light, and God is going to be there to welcome us immediately. You're not even going to feel it. Your spirit's probably going to disconnect before 
you even feel the pain of this accident, and you're going to be welcomed with great love, and you'll continue to love the people that you love from that side and give them that energy, and we'll be fine. And I was just there, you know, like in that light, just already ready to die. My only thought was like, oh, I thought I was going to do a little more <laughs> while I was here, but oh well, I guess this is the end. And then the engine caught in the, the plane, and uh, and we're able to make an emergency landing in a different place. The pilot actually came out, I guess it was really bad, and he said, I'm sorry for that, I will never fly again, and then left. So I don't know what happened on that flight, but I just know that it was bad. And and I got tested, you know, like, am I truly not afraid to die? And I was truly not afraid to die. You know, if someone tells me tomorrow that, you know, I have a long illness to walk through, eh, that's not going to be fun, the illness part. Mm -hmm. And I'm talking with Trisha Barker. She's an English professor, and she's interviewed numerous people who've had near-death ex experiences. And she's hosting the second season of the University of Heaven, which is an online school or forum for the study and understanding of near-death experiences and how we can utilize that understanding and information to enhance the quality of our own lives. And she's the author of Angels in the OR, What Dying Taught Me About Healing, Survival, and Transformation. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. Right now is probably a great time for you to talk about your near-death experience. You were in a, a really horrific car accident, and then it took a long time for you to actually get into the operating room because you didn't have health insurance. And so the on-duty neurosurgeon refused to come in to perform the surgery on you. So it, it, it took many hours before you actually got into the operating room. Could you talk about what happened in the operating room yeah, I'd be happy to. And it was, you know, I unofficially knew that the neurosurgeon didn't want to come in because I overheard nurses talking about the fact that he didn't want to come in because I didn't have health insurance. So so I'm sure I wasn't meant to overhear that. <laughs> you know, so a lot of people say, you know, that's unethical. He'd get paid anyway. But, but literally what I heard the nurse say was, he's on the golf course. He's not coming in because she doesn't have health insurance. And that kind of broke me because, you know, I, again, you know, there's this earth plane and then there is the spiritual experience. But there I was very angry when I heard that, that, um, you know, I was losing feeling in one of my legs. And each hour that went by, it seemed to be uh, no one knew what the internal injuries were. No one really fully knew what was going on with me. And that's why they couldn't give me pain meds because... It could interfere with anesthesia or, you know, like someone just needed to take my case and go, here, yeah, I'm going to take her into surgery and I'm going to do this. And it took a long while to find a neurosurgeon who did. And when when I connected with this off-duty one, she had to go home, take a shower and eat and rest a little because she'd been on duty for 40 hours and she couldn't just immediately perform my surgery. So I waited, and maybe that 
weight is what caused me to have the near-death experience, you know, the, the extra trauma of just being in pain and, and being strapped to a board and, and being in the, the ER. But, yeah, once once I was taking, taken in for surgery, I remember just the anesthesia and going under, and then the next thing I knew, my spirit form just lifted up out of my body, and I saw without eyes, the way eyes see, saw the whole room in 360-degree vision. I was up above myself and to the right. I was looking down at the surgeon's head. So uh, I really hoped that the book might capture, you know, the image on the book might capture a little bit of what I saw the first moments of my near-death experience. And it does have some, you know, medical professionals looking over a body. And I did see the tops of heads like that. But I remember looking at my physical body and thinking, ooh, a little gruesome because they had my back opened up and it's a very long scar that I have and my hip was opened up because at that time they took bone from your hip and put it back into the back so there was just a ton of blood on the sheets and you know just on the doctor's hands and I remember thinking wow bloody <laughs> but I didn't feel that connected to the physical body immediately I knew my spirit form as my true reality from that first moment. And I knew it wasn't a dream. I knew it wasn't a hallucination. And I have to tell you, I was really excited because I was an agnostic before. And I, I was like, oh, my God, we go on. We really do. Like, I know this. And I wanted to jump back into my body in that moment just so that I could survive and tell all my agnostic friends, like, I was wrong. You're wrong. Like, there is this spiritual reality out there, and we're going to continue, and it's awesome. You know, like, just that first moment. And it, the near-death experience, though, didn't stop there. The next minute I looked up, and, well, it's timeless, so I say minute, but, you know, the next occurrence is I looked up and I saw these massive light beings, which I now call angels, and they were sending these waves of energy into my spirit form to calm me down even more and to help me adjust to the spiritual realm. I think they were giving me information on how to exist as a spirit form, you know, how to, people wonder, what is it like being in body, and how is it different being in spirit form? Well, things happen quicker, and they happen in a different way. So after the angels were doing this, sending me energy, they sent energy through the backs of the surgeons, through their hands, and into my body, and I knew I was being given a healing that the bone fragments would be picked out of my spine, that I'd walk, that I'd be fine, and that they were assisting the surgeons. And I'd never heard of Reiki or energy work or anything like this in 1994. I was just a, a college student who, you know, was a bit of a party girl and, you know, not really interested in, in energy work. And But I feel like it was being demonstrated to me. Here were angels working through surgeons to bring healing to my physical form. At this point, I think I was still in an out-of-body experience, but then the monitor flatlined, and that's when it technically became the near-death experience because when that monitor flatlined and I recognized it from movies, we've all heard that sound, I was like, oh, I'm really done. <laughs> I don't want to be in this room. And so I flew out of the room. And I have to say that you know, near-death experiences have common themes, I've interviewed so many near-death experiencers, but they also are individualized. And so I think we each are 
individual personalities, even as souls. And my soul is kind of adventurous. You know, I love to travel. I'm just not afraid of a lot of things. And so me, I was like, ah, let's see what else is out there. <laughs> let's leave this hospital room. And I saw my stepdad getting a candy bar. And I heard that I needed to, and when I say heard, you know, like there's already this intelligence that's out there. And I, I call it God, but I was told on, on some level to pay attention to him doing this. And later this became my verifiable detail that he did indeed get this candy bar. And at this moment, my mother and father believed that I was dead and they were praying. And when he came back into the room with the candy bar, he offered them some candy bar, um, you know, some of his candy bar and made a joke and they all kind of, the mood was lightened. But, but they remembered him with the candy bar. And so that was my verifiable detail. And researchers love those details because they prove that consciousness survives the body. Well, after that, I flew out of the hospital and I was in the, this kind of night sky that transitioned into the cosmos. But before I got there, I felt this oneness with everyone in Austin, Texas. And I, everyone had been at my campus. And if you know UT and Austin, it's a huge campus with a ton of students. And, you know, you're just passing by people all the time. It's a busy downtown campus. And I just felt like I was saying goodbye to everyone I'd ever passed, everyone I'd ever, you know, said hello to that my soul was one with theirs, and I was like, goodbye, you know, I love you. And that, that seems to be the essential message, you know, when many people are on their deathbed or they're in that state of death, they really just want to say, goodbye, have a nice life, I love you. You know, it's really kind of simple. There's, you know, ultimate forgiveness of a lot, and it's really just this wish of, hey, be good and be loving and enjoy your life. And that was what I felt for people. As I transitioned into this cosmos, I felt a divine intelligence, and it looked like light from far away coming toward me and beginning to work on my soul. And I experienced what many people call the life review, but it was very quick, you know, as if I was just shown my whole life. And, and a couple of moments stood out, you know, moments when I was in nature and happy as a kid and had great faith, you know, that was, that was shown with great love. And then a few other moments that surprised me. Uh, one moment was looking at these people I waited tables with and they were a married couple who prayed for me and they were older than me, probably in their thirties. And I just didn't have time for them. I didn't think they were cool. They weren't college students. They didn't dress like me or listen to the same music or, you know, whatever. So I didn't have time for them, but they had such good hearts. And God showed me what I was missing out on by not looking at the hearts of people around me, but, you know, how someone dresses or looks is not as important as their hearts. And that seems like a superficial, silly message, but, but I'm 22. <laughs> like, and, and that's just what a lot of young people from junior high through college think, you know, they, they have their friendships based on, you know, what, what people enjoy doing, whether that's live music or, you know, the sport or whatever. And that's not important. The heart of people is what is important. And then I started getting these deep messages and one of them was remind them to go to nature another one was love is all that matters and it was as if this intelligence was slowing down 
and it wanted me to remember these statements. Love is all that matters. Remind them to go to nature. Be like a little child. And I thought, well, darn, that's pretty simple. You know, like, how are people on... How are people going to buy this message? It just didn't seem like profound enough. I wanted deeper information. Like these these ideas seemed simplistic, but they also seemed like deep truth. And so I took them into my soul and thought, okay, you know, this is what I'm being given here in this realm, and I've got to hold on to it. And then I, the spirit, I realized you can make it into the age you want to make it into. And so when I entered heaven, I entered heaven like a little child because I loved being a kid who loved nature. And so as I entered this, unless say heaven, this heavenly landscape, which kind of looked like a holding place, but it just this place of great peace. It um, was full of deep green grass that swayed in the wind and I just felt even more deeply relaxed, like, oh, you know, peace, this is great. And I saw my grandfather, who was the only person who was dead uh, that I knew. And this is an interesting bit of research that uh, I think it's Dr. Jeffrey Long talks about, but he says no one ever sees a live person during their near-death experience. They always see someone who's deceased. Occasionally they'll see someone who died while they died or like a day before they died or a week before they died and they didn't know they died and they're over there or maybe they both died in a similar accident and their friend is there to help them transition you know they've been there a few hours you know before and they will ask them what are you doing here oh i died too you're dead you know and they get that that help from someone but my grandfather died when i was 10 and and he looked very young. His spirit form, you know, he looked like he was glowing and beautiful. He had this strong jaw, and I almost didn't recognize him, but he was with this truck that he had given our family, and I felt like in that realm you can just manifest things, just like I wanted to fly out of the hospital. He was just able to provide this truck so that I would recognize him and that I would have a little fun. And I jumped in the back of the truck, and... He used to do this when I was a kid because he lived way out in the country. He just drove through an open field, and I let my feet dangle in the grass, and he was driving very slow, and I was at peace. And he looked at me at some point and said, would you like to continue on? And I knew that continue on meant go towards that light, which was God, and the light represented God. And without hesitation, I was like, yes, you know, just excited to go toward that light, and I felt prayer as a wind, and prayer is is an interesting concept because people, you know, misunderstand it sometimes and say, you know, I prayed for this and this didn't happen. Well, even if I had died, even if I had not come back, I still would have felt the prayers of people and I would have felt their love, and it wouldn't have been lost. It would have been, oh, hey, I knew you loved me, and it's cool I had to stay here, but, you know, I, I thank you for your prayer. And... So I felt the prayer as energy of love and as words, and but I just kind of broke through it. It wasn't going to hold me back, and I wasn't interested in what other people wanted. My soul wanted God. I knew, as we said earlier in this conversation, so many near-death experiencers know this light of God as home, as, oh, here's what I've been looking for my whole life. Here's what 
I never experienced to this degree. Here's that love. That's everything I ever wanted, and I'm finally there. And that's, I felt like moment by moment, just an overflowing, overwhelming amount of love. And I felt safe to love back. You know, that our love can be misinterpreted here, but there I could love God with as much passion and as much love as I wanted to. And it was safe, and it was just great. It was an exchange of love and an infusion of love and Everything that I had been, everything that I had done, uh, I was just met with enormous compassion and almost like I was cradled like a baby, but then free as a bird at the same time. And, and you know, these contradictions are, are hard to explain with words. You know, how do you explain an otherworldly experience? I can only say that this experience never fades. In fact, it gets stronger the more talk about it or think about it, you know, I, I can't remember everything about my life in exact detail, but I never forget uh, this, this near-death experience is so clear. It's uh, so different from any other memory because it's just different. And as I was in this otherworldly love, this, this whole, this amazing um, place, I was stopped at some point as if there was a barrier. And I was, I knew I couldn't keep going towards God. And when I, I had, I was told, I, I heard, you know, there's kind of telepathy, but it kind of booms with inside you, you know, when you hear these messages inside your soul, and, and God seemed to say, look down. And many things you just know intuitively without them having to be described or explained, but I saw this river, and it looked like a progression of life or or an actual river, and there were all these souls, and the souls were either full of light, and this meant they were in a great place, and in a good place, and, and uh, understood their connection to to God, and to being in a place of joy and love, and actual actualizing what they need to here, and then others were surrounded by fear, and I saw the fear as a shadow, and sometimes the fear was deep, and sometimes it was just a little bit and sometimes it might have just been a little depression, and God said, you need to go back there, and you need to remind them to turn on their lights. And I was like, and I knew this meant I was going to teach, and I was not happy about that, (laughs) because growing up poor, I wanted to eventually go to law school. I wanted to make money in some way, but I knew that my mission was to simply help people become more actualized, less fearful, more happy, more joyful, and that somehow that's what I was meant to do. And I didn't like it in that moment. I either wanted to stay there in heaven or come back here and be something else other than a teacher, but those were the options, and I was sent back. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I was not um, given any other choices. And so when I woke up, a lot of people asked, you know, how long did it take to integrate your near-death experience or or accept it? For whatever reason, I'd heard about them, and I, I knew that it was a possibility, and I knew what had occurred immediately. So as soon as, you know, the tracheotomy was taken out of me, I was asking my surgeon how long I was dead. I was talking to nurses about God, you know, that even though I was on morphine and, you know, in great pain, 
I remembered God. I couldn't forget it. I was afraid I was going to forget it, so I asked for paper and tried to write down some of what I saw uh, with the angels. But but that experience from the first moments I woke up, I just never doubted it, never uh, denied it, never um, never could forget it. And people who've had these near-death experiences talk about the reality of those experiences as being more real than even the experience of being in this world. Yes, I, I felt that from the first moment. So when I saw the angels working on the doctors, I was like, "Oh, they think that they're so smart and that they're you know like they're the ones who are are um, creating this great recovery for me." But they're just a part of it. The angels are assisting them, and I bet they don't even know it. That's hilarious. And I saw this reality beyond the reality that we look at and it, it seems so much more magical <laughs> like wow angels are assisting surgeons and how cool is that you know that that's just an added reality so it looked like we just miss a lot of, of what's going on and and maybe our subconscious sometimes picks up on it you know this presence of love that might be around us and what we think hmm, okay strange <laughs> just move on but but over in that realm, I just saw it look like an added reality to this one. And in this world, we've been conditioned and programmed by our culture to filter out all of that stuff from from that other world. Oh, yeah. From a very young age, kids who have imaginary friends or spiritual experiences are just told that they have an imagination or, you know, that's not important. And grow but, up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or that you eventually you'll grow up and grow out of that because that's not real. Grow up. Yeah. <laughs> Which is <Yeah>. sad. <laughs> it is sad. It is sad because it should be encouraged and we should uh, remember our connection more often than tell others to forget. <laughs> and it and it and one doesn't necessarily doesn't have to exclude the other. We we can we can embody all of it. Exactly. Exactly. But there's just more magic and connection when we think about the fact that that there might be so much more than our our brains are picking up on in this moment. And you know, it's taken me a while to open up to giving medium readings or trusting intuition and trusting energetic knowledge, but it's also a beautiful experience to open up more to that. You mean integrating that into your experience in this world? Yeah, yeah. So when people ask me um, to connect with their deceased parents or, you know, their deceased pet or, you know, any anything like that, at first I was reluctant to try, but then I thought, well, I'll give it a shot because if I'm connected to love on that other side and I know that I still am connected to my ancestors, maybe I can tap into the love that others feel for their ancestors and, and bring some messages through that will help them and that will make sense to them. And and it, it's amazing. I mean, I, I, I'm shocked myself at how it works, but it actually does work and I just have to trust that process. So it sounds like it's very natural. It is. It is. And one of the things that I hope to do in in connecting 
in that way is to help others connect too. If they begin, if I can show them how to sense that energy and believe in what they're picking up on, then they themselves have that deeper connection. Because who better can decipher the messages of a loved one than the person who's connected to that loved one? So it makes sense to me to, in some instances, just help other people connect. So it's really interesting that you were sent back and given like a mission to teach and you characterized it as teaching to share this experience that you've had with others and to share the love with others, which I think is the most beautiful thing, most important thing that any teacher can give in any kind of teaching endeavor or teaching environment. But it's very interesting that in addition to that, your teaching actually was very, very helpful in your own healing process as well. Yeah, it was just as much for me as it was for them. And it took a while for me to understand that. But but eventually I realized that, yeah, okay, because I'd suffered child abuse, I was going to encounter tons of kids who'd also, who were in the midst of suffering it and maybe in varying degrees, maybe I could give them strength to heal and to get through it and to reevaluate, you know, what's going on quicker. But it, it didn't hit me until many years later and I realized, oh, the act of service, you know, service to others is something many near-death experiencers bring back from that other side. And I realized in all that serving of others, I had really helped myself sometimes more than them, <laughs> that, that it kept my mood upbeat and that maybe even my suicide attempt and some of my self-destructiveness was a product of too much self-focus, you know, of just my needs and me and me, me, me. And when I was connected to a greater world, I mean, I've had students who are, you know, they were one of the boys of Sudan who they've lost every single family member that they have possibly had. They've had to relocate to a new place, and then they're sitting in my classroom without anyone in this world. And, you know, how am I going to... I mean, you know, my experience is kind of minor, you know, in comparison to that level of grief and loss. I've had people who their entire families have been shot in front of them, and they're the only survivor. I've had people who were... You know, I had one student who was gang raped at 15, got AIDS, or got HIV, and now she has AIDS, and, you know, she's walking through, you know, that illness. I mean, there are countless stories of, you know, unbelievable tragedy that I've encountered in, in various people's lives. And when I'm focused on love for them, love for their loss, love for how they can heal, I mean, how am I going to worry about myself? You <laughs> know, And what a gift that is. Yes, and how how receptive were these these students that you had who were so traumatized and so bereft in in their own lives to what you had to offer? You know, they were largely open, and this is what breaks my heart. Um, I don't I don't know how many people even asked my student who is from Sudan about his experience, but I just kept him after class, and I said wow, you know, I saw a movie, I've read some books on what what life was like for you, tell me. And so he just told me his story, and he told me that 
I asked him, what did you want to do when you got here? And he said, I didn't have anyone, so I wanted to get married so that I had someone, you know, that I could call my family. And I was like, interesting, and, and just asked him questions. I don't know how many people even take the time, and that's what breaks my heart, to just listen to what other people are going through. You know, like that alone is a service to just care. Mm-hmm. At the end of your book, you write about connecting to your inner child as part of your healing and going through a kind of reparenting process with your inner child and giving her all the things that you didn't get while you were growing up. Yeah, that can be a really fun exercise for anyone who has been hurt as a kid. You know, even if you come from a great family, there's there's usually something, you know, that hurt along the way or that you, you know, you feel like you missed out on or you don't understand. And to be able to give that to yourself in a safe way is just profound and fun. And and it, it brings um, your whole life into perspective. You know, timelessness is one of the after effects of near-death experiencers as well. So you can feel connected to your childhood. You can have a sense of your life as a whole and really just love yourself in this moment and and be able to go back in time and just go, hey, if I was your parent, you know, I would have picked you up and given you lots of love and safety and, you know, you're okay. And when you feel that at a deeper level, then you're able to be in this moment in time and take a deeper breath and be more okay <laughs> in the moment. Mm-hmm. There's an old saying in the alternative psychotherapy community that it's never too late to have a happy childhood. <laughs> I love that. Since we're just about out of time, talk about the University of Heaven. Yeah, so I've partnered with Raymond Moody and Lisa Smart to have the second annual online near-death experience summit, and you can find that if you follow the University of Heaven or follow me on Facebook or YouTube. But what this does for many people, I, and last year when I put it together, is if you listen to near-death experiencers talk for a while, then you know if you hear one story after another, then people have found that their faith has increased or that their doubt has gone away or that they've picked up on this energy of heaven. One thing that's really kind of amazing at the last summit, I've had people say that they started painting more and writing more music and being more creative. And we have two experiencers at this summit who both came back from their near-death experiences with profound musical gifts. And that, I mean, when people come back with gifts like that, it's it's just amazing. It, it adds a lot of hope to this world, and it's kind of stunning. One man, um, David Ditchfield, wasn't musically trained, but he came back after his after being hit by a train and being in this realm and getting great healing. He also was given a full symphony to compose, and he only played the guitar. He'd never written any kind of symphony, and it was performed, and, and the BBC covered it, and it's just beautiful. You know, like his, his um, yeah, near-death experiences like that just amaze me, but there's Many researchers, top researchers, different perspectives, well-known near-death experiencers. What's cool about the summit is you can listen to all the videos, and then on June 23rd, you could listen to the videos right now, you can ask your own questions of these people. So a lot of times there's all these Facebook 
boards and discussion groups and people have lots of questions that go unanswered, but the summit allows the participant to ask questions because at all these conferences, I think the Q&A part is really important for people. They want to know, hey, I have this loss or I have this burning question. What can I do in this moment or what advice do you have to give me? So I created this online format. I've been an educator for so long and I've taught some online education, but I know sometimes online education is important because not everyone can afford to be at a college campus. Maybe they don't have a car and the same thing with all these spiritual conferences. Not everyone can afford, you know, a hotel room and a flight and the price of the conference, but they still want that information. There's a lot of free information that I give away and others give away on YouTube, but this is just kind of a special way to connect with other near-death experiencers and researchers. Mm -hmm. And there's another really practical aspect of this, and that is that a lot of people are terrified of, of dying, and they're also terrified for their loved ones who, who may be dying. And, and through this kind of education and information, maybe they can find a little more peace with that. Yes. You know, I know that many people who are sick or terminal or they're losing someone find great peace in listening to near-death experiencers, and many near-death experiencers become hospice volunteers or death doulas or ministers or someone who sits with the dying because we don't have that fear, and we know we can give peace to those who are transitioning. So, yeah, that those who have experienced loss are definitely drawn and found and find great peace. It's been wonderful talking with you. I've enjoyed this so much. Me too. Thank you so much for your show and for having me as a guest. Trisha Barker is the author of Angels in the OR, What Dying Taught Me About Healing, Survival, and Transformation. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, have a wonderful week. <laughs>